Well, hi there. Welcome to Totally Fantastic Title. I'm Krista Wallace. I have had quite a busy week and a bit with social media stuff. Um, I had a chat with Josh Pantelaresco on his podcast, Just Joshing. Do skip the first 47 minutes if you don't want to hear about COVID. Then we got into some other stuff after that. Then I did some readings on Writer's Open Mic with Zoe, uh, a.k.a. Polykiss. She also said she would be editing the episode and then it would also appear on YouTube for a few months. So keep your eyes open for that. When I know that it exists, I will also post a link to that somewhere. I'll put the links to these in the episode description, by the way. And finally, I was really pleased to be a guest on Myth and Magic, a podcast by Neil Mack. And uh, and that episode went to air today, March 31st. Myth and Magic. The, again, the link is in the episode description. Check the podcast out if you are a writer of fantasy or a lover of fantasy. There's some really interesting research and discussion he has on there. So pretty cool. And I really enjoyed my chat with Neil. So check that out. Now. Where did we leave off in Gatekeeper's Deception? Oh yes, the last episode left us feeling like we were in transition, with only Frederick and Harley remain of that band of rogues. And there's a piper down. Gatekeeper's Deception by Krista Wallace. Chapter 25. Only time would tell if he was right. Gilvray estimated they would arrive at the Inden Caves by late tomorrow afternoon. They'd left around supper time the day before, heading south at first. Major Carlo Chada had capable command of the outpost while Gilvray was off on his errand to ensure that the raiders had not returned to the Black Mountains. Chada had objected at first. Anyone else could have taken the errand. Gilvray insisted it had been his responsibility last winter and therefore his to follow up. Chada appeared to believe him. They slept when the moon was high and altered their direction to due west in the morning. Lieutenant Marcus Fleming had agreed to come along. He was the only other one who knew about the key and the real purpose of the errand. It was Fleming's suggestion that had prompted Gilvray to come on the journey, only fair to include him. They'd brought a few other riders with them who had sworn not to reveal the true location of the Major's errand. Gilvray patted the pouch at his side. He didn't know how the key worked, but he was sure that between him and Fleming they'd figure it out. And then... He smiled. Such a gift he would have for his lady. She would be so happy with it, and so happy to see him. He would forget his minor indiscretion as he bathed in the light of her joy. They had two weeks until Colonel Greenberg was due back. Plenty of time. Crabgrass blades scratched the mage's legs and grasshoppers jumped free of his bare feet. He plodded alongside Kier's travoy, which had been adjusted so Trigg could pull it, and studied the lines on her face. She seemed to feel no relief in spite of Derry's efforts. Jaskellen had reported his wellness that morning and they'd made ready to head south at once. From the six horses left by Frederick's dead companions, the company took what supplies they could use, then Jaskellen spoke to the animals, directing them north to Seaview, where they would find good stabling. He felt better after one night. Kier, on the other hand, 
The magical aura still emanated from her like ripples in a lake. Part of him wanted to demand that the horses be stopped so he could search through her belongings, her clothes, her pouches and pockets to find the sources of magic that felt like heat from a fire. Jaskelin could not sort through all the confusion of thoughts and doubts. He rubbed a palm on his black bald head and clutched his staff. I need to meditate. Why, if Kier wanted to ensure her plot to kill Alan Mare was carried out, did she go to such lengths to acquire the rune pattern? Why, if Kier wanted Alon to die, did she enter the caves and find the dust? Alternatively, why, if she had nothing to do with Alon's illness, did she know about the snake necklace? If Kier could gate, as Frederick had said, and all evidence pointed to the truth of that, why had she not told them? Because it is evidence of her culpability. Jaskelin bristled. How could Kier, a farm girl from northern Heath, possess such a skill? The question of how Kier had managed to enter the caves was one that Jaskelin chose to block out. There were simply too many mysteries surrounding the girl. The mage had doubts about Frederick in light of recent events, but his doubts about Kier were stubborn and would be less easily washed away. Jaskelin stepped quickly ahead so he would not have to walk next to her. Gilvray's estimation of travel time was only a little off. Being away from his command duties at the outpost brought on the joy of freedom and he hadn't pushed his men. Home leave beckoned wherein true freedom would be his. Why not celebrate and get into the spirit early? So when they stopped to rest and one of his men pulled out a jug of spirits, they had partaken. Nightfall saw the company arrive at the foot of the Inden Hills. It was a little later than he'd hoped, but no matter. They would ascend the path in the morning. They'd padded the travoy with her blankets to make it as comfortable as possible. There was not much else they could do. She was strapped in with her own belt and sash to keep her from being flung out or sliding off the end. Their journey would take them at least another three weeks at this rate, probably closer to a month, and Derry was worried. In spite of his efforts in setting Kier's broken bones, he was certain there would be some permanent damage, which was the reason he had decided against solidifying them with the healing potion at this time. Jaskelin was still too unwell after his own injuries to try taking some of her pain through his transference spell. The mage argued that even if he performed the spell, it would have so little an effect on the injured woman it was not worth the time it would then take Jaskelin to recover before being well enough to travel. The company had debated returning to Seaview for help, but the need to acquire the final ingredient and to get the cure to Alon Mare was too great, and they decided to press on. Too many difficult decisions, the captain thought ruefully, then scolded himself. You wanted this. This is what a knight does. A day and a half south across the grassland they entered a scrubby pine forest that filtered the light but not the dusty heat. The pass through the mountains was at least another full day away. There was still so great a distance to the houses of healing at Barthelen Castle. They had tried to force-feed Kier broth, but it had made her ill, and she let out a groan as they tipped her on her left side. Derry hated to increase her pain, but they could not risk her choking on her own vomit. She actually opened her eyes just then, and Derry smiled at her encouragingly, though he couldn't be sure she saw him. 
It seemed that in these more wakeful moments the pain was too much, and she slid back into the painless bliss of unconsciousness. She was able to keep the tea down better than the broth, so he'd stick to that. It did little to ease her discomfort, but it kept her sleeping and was better than nothing. Derry frowned and stowed the water-skin with the remaining tea on Kier's horse. "'I've been thinking, Captain.' Fennel's elven footfalls made not the slightest whisper on the dry pine cones and needles that crunched beneath Derry's feet. The voice drew Derry out of his worry. "'What about?' he said, with no curiosity. "'About the last ingredient, the sap from the Tree of Life. You have to take it so slowly with Kier. Why don't I head southeast and collect the sap? Then I'll meet up with you further down the road.' Derry agreed that it was a good idea and presented it to the group. "'I'll go with you,' said Frederick. "'And so will I,' said Janik, eyeing Frederick with poorly disguised suspicion. Derry had to admit he shared the dwarf's sentiment. "'Very well.' Derry did some quick calculations of distance and geography in his head. The mountain range to the south of where they now stood was a V-shape, one side of which extended northwest all the way to Burns Gulf. The other extension culminated in the very place where the party had become ill so many days ago. In the crux of the V lay the Tree of Life, protected on three sides by mountains. "'But you'll have to backtrack all the way to the pass. Is there much point?' Slyness crinkled the corners of Fennel's mouth. You do remember I am a product of the guarded realm, don't you, Captain? And my father is a lord. Ah, Derry nodded in understanding. Very well. We will continue directly southward. Once you have the sap, meet us... Where? How about the eastern tip of the Bolivar Chasm? Do you know it? Good. If we reach it and you're not there, we'll leave a mark. When you arrive, you'll know we've passed it and you can catch us up. If there's no mark, wait for us there. Excellent, Fennel agreed. Leave the double dagger symbol and we'll know it's your mark. Captain? Derry turned to Harley as he nudged his horse over to Fennel's. With your leave, I'd like to join them, Harley said. Derry managed to hold a neutral expression while doubt played dice with his instincts. Was the young man daring him? The captain did some more calculations, this time on what he knew of each individual's skills. Could he, Jaskelin and Skimnoddle, adequately defend themselves from possible brigands without Harley? Balance that with Fennel's situation. Could the elf and Janik stand up to Frederick on their own? Further to that, if Harley proved to still be in Frederick's camp, could the elf and dwarf hang on to the upper hand? Derry saw something in Harley's intense gaze. Was it a dare, or was it pleading? A look over at Skimnoddle decided it. The halfling was seemingly paying no attention, but had pulled out a coin. As Derry watched, he tucked it into one fist and blew through it. When he opened the hand, the coin was gone. Then he leaned over and drew the coin out of his pony's ear. Then he began the process again. Illusions are everywhere. The truth can be hidden right before your eyes. Derry breathed in the hot, parched air. I have to follow my instinct. Yes, he said. Join them. Harley bowed his head. The trees thinned and the party emerged from the sparse woods and the envoys prepared to separate. After checking their supplies and making sure they had an extra water skin to carry the sap, they waved farewell and veered off to the southwest to find the Tree of Life, the sun still high but leaning casually toward the west.
Perhaps after we link up with them, I'll send them on to Barthelon Castle, Derry thought. He and a couple of others could continue the plodding journey with Kier, but the main objective must still be to get the ingredients to Alon Mare as swiftly as possible. Oh, such a great distance still lay between them and their destination. How long do you suppose it will take them? Jeskelin asked. I'd say about three days to get there, Derry said, scratching his neck. Fennel seems to know another way out. Another three, maybe, to get to the chasm? But we haven't even considered the other protections surrounding the tree. Magical? Some of them, yes, Derry said. Admittedly, I don't even know for sure. The tree is the very subject the realm guards are watching over, and I don't believe for a moment they would leave it wide open. Mayhap I ought to have gone with them. Jeskelin twisted his head to watch their departing comrades, who had already galloped into the distance well out of earshot. They could very well need my assistance. There is something in what you say, Derry replied from atop Donegill's high back. However, speed is of the essence, and I needn't point out that your footsteps more closely match the speed of the Travoy than their horses. Besides, we will certainly need your assistance. Jeskelin looked up at him from the ground his bare feet trod. The mage smiled and shrugged. It was hard for his friend to admit weakness, and Derry admired his acceptance of it this time. The situation was too grave to toy with. "'Speaking of which,' Jeskelin said, "'Skimnoddle has been guiding Trigg and his cargo for quite some time. I ought to fall back and take his place.' At the head of the group, Derry was left alone with his thoughts, an internal struggle he'd been avoiding." Derry twisted in the saddle to see Skimnoddle's bow to the mage as the latter took hold of Trigg's reins. The halfling trotted back and mounted his pony with the swiftness born of experience. Derry smiled to himself, remembering the trouble he'd had at the start of the trip. He recalled Kier's disparaging look as the halfling wound up backwards in the saddle, and suddenly he realized how long this negative sentiment had been growing. Had he been carrying this ill feeling toward his friend since way back then? He glanced down at Donegill's black mane, matted from lack of care. The day they left, he'd stood combing it through his fingers, soothing the beast's fretting. He had been angry at Kier since before they'd left Shale. They'd all been emotional when they returned from the previous mission. It had been a difficult time for them all, and on top of it they'd learned of Alon Mare's illness. Kier had surprised him by being the first to volunteer for this mission— he had never really understood it, frankly, and she hadn't been forthcoming. For his own part, he'd opened up to her. He'd confided in her his disappointment in not being awarded his knighthood, and what did she do? She'd brushed him off and snapped at him. Wait. No, she hadn't. Derry watched a hawk circle off to the west, pinpointing its prey far below. Derry understood what the graceful bird must feel like. His mind circled his troubles in the same way. He was wrong. Kier had not snapped at him for confiding in her. Just the opposite. He remembered her kind, reassuring tone as she told him he had impressed Val, that the Duke simply had not had time. He pictured again the scene in the stairwell at Shale Castle. Just the opposite. He had snapped at her. Worse, in fact. Val hadn't given him a knighthood, and he had blamed Kier for it. Why? because he hadn't forgiven her for killing Ronav. More than that, it had offended his sensibilities that she had challenged his leadership by disobeying an order. 
His confidence had quaked. She always seemed to know her own mind. Derry was ever second-guessing himself, and he envied her. Gradually, continually, the gap created in those short days at Shale Castle had widened. He recalled asking Juskelin to be his second on this mission, the smug tone with which he had asked, knowing Kier was within earshot. Derry had grown so distant from Kier that he was no longer able to see her clearly. The blame for the distance lay with him alone. He had taught her not to trust him, and he had been all too happy for the excuse to not trust her. She cannot be the enemy. Donegal plodded between the bushes and torchweed with their tall, candle-like red flowers. Tiny black flies perched like sentries at their tops, then disappeared down among the greenery, protecting their homes from the parade of travellers. Kier lay on the travoy behind Trigg, but Derry didn't need to see her. Her face was etched in his mind. Her ardent determination as she volunteered for the mission. Her kind smile as she assured him he deserved a knighthood. Her near hysteria when they found her the morning after she'd followed Frederick. The taunting smile as she'd stood on the porch in Seaview just before going off with young Todd. The profound hurt and anger as he'd accused her outside the army encampment. And now, agony and helplessness. Each image of his friend flitted through Derry's thoughts and scraped out his heart. So many facets to her passions and how easy to misread them. In the short time he'd known her, she'd become the best friend he had besides Valraker. They'd been through more than most friends experienced in a lifetime, and yet lately anger and mistrust had replaced the respect and affection they'd built. How solid was the foundation of such a short acquaintance? Would he ever be able to undo the damage he had done and stitch the rent in their friendship? What if she didn't survive this terrible journey? Derry felt sick at the thought. He needed to ask her forgiveness. If he couldn't do that, he wouldn't be able to live with himself. I must get her safely to Barthelen Castle so she can be healed so I can speak to her again. Leagues upon leagues remained in the journey. The pass would not be easy, then on to the chasm. Beyond that was at least a six-day ride to the border from the guarded realm into West Eckert, and that was for a healthy rider. With Kier on the Travoy, it would take longer. And after that, Derry didn't even want to think about it. As he absently steered Donegal around a series of rocks and boulders, he heaved a sigh. It's just too far. He choked back a sob and thought of the other thing that had been on his mind. The white rose. She'd promised Kami she'd keep it close to her heart, and yet, since it was in her possession, she'd been trapped underground in an earthquake and hit in the back with an arrow. She was accosted by Frederick. She'd become moody and preoccupied as if something were gnawing at her. She'd even fallen off her horse. And now this terrible fall. Was the rose the source of Kier's troubles? At first light, Ryerson Gilvray's mind was set on climbing the path, but as they prepared breakfast, one of his men alerted him. In the darkness of their arrival, they had not seen the remains of someone else's campfire. It was cold, but only a day or two old. Anxiety pressed its fingers across his shoulders. Gilvray posted two men at the foot of the hills, sending them to patrol the base of the mountain to the north and south. Marcus Fleming accompanied him, of course, as well as two others. They plodded up the path in the close morning heat, excitement built in Gilvray's gut with each step closer to his goal. 
When he reached the top of the switchback path, he paused. The plant that crossed in front of them normally opened for them to pass. This time it blocked their way. Gilvray had never visited the doors without the colonel and did not know the trick to get rid of the plant. There was a feeling of pressure on the side of his head and his thoughts were penetrated by the voice of the Treyurn. He nearly cried out in surprise. At its request, Gilvray pulled out the key and after what was apparently a moment of puzzled thought, the plant pulled back its thorny tendrils. He walked forward. The air was motionless, soundless, as if a glass dome had been placed over top of the clearing. It had the appearance of being outdoors, but without the rustle of a leaf or a sigh of wind. Something wasn't right. The dirt ground was dotted with tufts of grass, with tree roots and rocks jutting through. It was hard-packed in places, untouched since the last rain, yet loosened in others as if it had been stirred. It looked so tidy. The men fanned out within the area, not stirred, raked, the same effect as when someone cleaned up after. Gilvray crouched and toyed his finger in the dry dirt. Aha! Droplets of blood clumsily covered over as if in haste. It wasn't long before more signs were found, including a shriveled aspen tree and crushed bushes where it looked like someone had fallen over the edge. Who? Gilvray shook his head. He was mystified and more than a little concerned. Who had been here, and where had they gone? Gilvray wiped his palms on his trousers as he scouted around the clearing. How did they get past that trayurn? No one was authorized to be here, not even himself, in truth. This did not look good. The doors. He headed toward them. Fleming, you two, check over the rest of the clearing. Sir? Gilvray stepped hesitantly through the gap between the two pillars. The dusty, sandy dirt felt as though there were solid rock beneath it, like a front porch for the doors. He gazed up at the excruciatingly complex design of runes on the door. They seemed to crawl around the stone even as he stared at them. Pulling out the key, Gilvray held it up and compared its design to the multitude of etchings on the door. It looked completely hopeless. He leaned against the pillar and stared at the ground, thinking... He stared at the ground. His eyes came into focus. He stared at the ground and a crease formed in his forehead. What he saw puzzled him. He replaced the precious key in its pouch and slowly knelt on the chalky dust ground of the threshold. Reaching out his hand, he traced with his finger in the air above a footprint? Several. One set. Coming and going into and out of the Inden Caves, as well as what could be the prints of one horse's shoes, a second, larger set of footprints on the north side of the door. Major! It was Fleming calling from the other side of the clearing. Gilvray didn't look. Yes? Someone got in. What do you make of this? What is it? Who could have? The lieutenant hesitated. Uh, I think we just missed some company, sir. Head spinning with confusion, Ryerson Gilvray joined Fleming at the far end of the clearing. They looked into the woods. A grave? Only a couple of days old, I'd say. Gilvray pressed his lips together, his heart racing, his guts churning with mounting anger. Someone had trespassed here. They didn't have the key, yet they'd made it past the trayurn. They'd fought, and several had died. But what disturbed him most was that someone had breached the cave doors without the key. Sir, is this anything? 
One of the younger soldiers, crouching on his haunches at the edge of the clearing, peered at something on the ground. It looks like leather. Gilvray joined him. The thing had been stepped on, pressed into the loose dirt. Gilvray picked it up between his thumb and index finger to examine it. It looked like an ordinary leather belt pouch. It felt empty, but he checked. Then he turned it over. Neatly engraved in the leather was a perfect reproduction of the rune pattern on the key to the Inden Caves. His mind whirled. Who? But he knew the answer before he finished the question. His mouth went dry. Racing back over to the cave doors, Gilvray knelt down and examined the footprints, mentally bringing up a picture of a certain pair of boots that had been passionately flung to one side a few nights ago. Gilvray would have wagered his home leave that the person responsible had penetrating green eyes, those dark eyes that dared him. Alternate circumstances. He'd been sure she couldn't be there just to see him. This was confirmation that his instinct was correct. Whore. She'd violated him, and he wanted to scrub himself clean. He forgot his own desire to attempt entry to the caves in his deep-seated fury that someone else had already done it. If Greenberg heard about a breach to the cave doors, that posting north of the Sea of Kun would become a horrible reality. He stormed back onto the switchback path. With his men reassembled, Gilvray sent out two scouts to find which way the intruders had gone. Upon their return, he barked out orders. He sent a couple of men back to the outpost with strict instructions not to report to Major Chada. They would gather supplies and head south to reunite with Gilvray. The rest would go with him. Ryerson Gilvray was on the hunt. Juskelin took hold of Trigg's bridle. Ho oh, there, beastie! Trigg chuffed at him, which Jeskelin interpreted as a welcome. The mage reached a hand up for the horse to sniff, and because Trigg didn't snap at him, he stroked the animal's soft auburn neck. Eyes front again, Jeskelin peered around the warhorse that blocked much of his view and could just barely make out the thin blue line that was the mountains to the south. They would assuredly reach the pass by nightfall. That would make it nearly four days since they'd left the foot of the Inden Hills— we're behind schedule, he remarked to himself, and wished he could think of a way to speed up their passage. But then, there was no point in going any faster than the party who had gone to find the tree. Jeskelin frowned. Days ago, when they were all angry and frustrated at Kier's odd behavior and lack of communication, it was easy to believe that something was not right with her. But now, with her continued suffering from the consequences of killing Misty, the one who had stolen the ingredients from them, Jeskelin had the feeling that certain guesses he had made were not quite accurate. Frederick's story had rung true at the time, but was that only because Jeskelin was open to negative thoughts about his comrade? A terrible leaden feeling grew in the pit of Jeskelin's belly. Fennel didn't like this. Not one bit. Frederick Hayland wants glory. That's what this is about. The former captain wanted Kean's faith in him restored. Was his intention to share in the party's success or steal it? Fennel had confided his concerns to Derry before they had parted. It is a valid worry, Derry agreed. The other side of it is that he needs you more than he needs us at this point. I believe he is sincere about saving Alon's life, so if you are the keeper of the sap, he will be motivated to protect you. The captain glanced over at Kier. I believe we in our small party have more to fear from him than you. Fennel couldn't argue with that. 
Still, he vowed to keep a wary eye on that fellow. They had curved around the northern spur of the mountain range. Fennel intended to hug the hills as closely as possible, following them southeast to the narrow gap that formed a natural gate to the home of the Tree of Life. The aromatic scent of pines and balsams wafted along the wind that descended the hill alongside a trickle of a stream. Layout splashed through the cool water. Fennel's blonde hair whipped him in the face as he glanced behind him where Harley rode alongside Frederick. They didn't speak to one another, but Fennel had the sense that Harley was watching Frederick. I'm still not sure about him, Fennel thought, but his instinct was to trust Harley over Frederick. Only time would tell if he was right. The sun was suspended in a cloudy haze about an inch above the hills to the rider's right, showing a few more hours riding were still available today. They should reach the entrance to the valley where the Tree of Life grew by late on the day after tomorrow. Gilvray watched the approach of his men and supplies with the warmth of the thinly veiled sun on his cheek. Relief sighed through him, and he breathed the scent of the pine forest in which they'd made camp. With the arrival of the rest of his men, they could resume the chase, and soon now, very soon, he would punish Kier for her betrayal and for stealing whatever it was she stole from inside the caves. The only thought that settled his nerves was that this mess would be cleared up before the colonel returned. He would have Kier and the other intruders in custody, and they would have to explain themselves to the colonel. Gilvray would more than likely be rewarded for his handling of a delicate situation, he hoped. On the other hand, the colonel might be furious that the emissaries had been permitted to leave in the first place. The soldiers rode up, saluting as they dismounted. Sir, the spokesman said. We have news as well as supplies. Oh, yes? Sir, Major Chada had a messenger from the colonel. Warning bells clanged in Gilvray's head. Go on. They will conclude their business early. He returns in one week. <sighs> he had heard that temperatures north of the Sea of Kun occasionally rose above freezing. Oh, my dear lovely girl. I know all about your mission and about you. Did I not say I am your guardian? You are looking for the cure for Alon Mare. You killed Ronav Malachite in Nenya. What's more, you enjoyed it. One thing more, a particular magical gift you have. His touch sends shimmers down my body, eyes deeper than a midnight sky. White stone. Keep this with you, and I'll always be able to find you. Gift? What the hell did he mean by gift? Kami, you don't need that. Others needed my assistance more than you at that now, time. Now you need it more than anyone else. You owe me nothing. White stone. And I'll always be able to find you. You owe me nothing. White stone. Rumbling, bouncing, aching. That face, who is... Skim, skim something. Lips moving, can't hear. And I'll always be able to find you. White stone. Skimnoddle looked eagerly into Kier's open eyes. Good morning, dearest love. He rested a hand on his heart. Fear not, you are under the expert care of our physical adept. We enter the past today. You will be fine. Be brave, my love. She reached up her right hand to fumble with the pocket in her trousers, fighting the pain in her shoulder. She looked worried about something. 
"'It's all right, Kier,' he said, with genuine earnestness. "'Whatever troubles you will cease.' Her clenched hand dropped to the side of the carrier on which she lay. Skimnoddle moved to take his place leading Trigg. Jeskelin came around to walk behind the travoy and make sure Kier didn't tumble out as they headed up the slope into the pass. He stepped on something nestled in the pine-needle floor as he passed Kier. It was a small white stone. He sensed the presence of magic in the air, as he always did when he stood next to Kier. He shuddered and glanced down at her closed eyes, wondering at the pained expression. What was she thinking about right now? He kicked the stone aside and took up his place just as the travoy jolted ahead, pulled by Kier's four-legged companion. He tossed a tracking confusion spell onto the trail behind him. As they moved forward, Kier's pain seemed to dissipate. The tightness around her mouth and eyes ebbed away. It must be that the rocking of the carrier soothes her, he decided. Frederick sat straight and tall in the saddle, trying to recapture the grandeur of his former days. Determination flowed through his veins, or was it desperation? He felt as if he were back in the army, riding toward his first battle, a young soldier eager to prove himself to his commanding officer. Only this time the object of his focus was a scatterbrained elf. He gritted his teeth and choked down his resentment. If I'm going to get what I want out of this, I have to be successful with him. The plan to defame Kier was on rocky ground. At the start, Frederick was pretty confident that he'd won Jeskelin and Derry over, maybe even Janik and the halfling. The elf was problematic, but Frederick had felt that even he could be convinced with the right words. But then Kier had killed Misty. That was a bold move, and one that looked to be in her favor. Still, he had not given up. Frederick adjusted his grip on the reins. No, all was not lost. Derry and his party were teetering on the brink of believing in Kier's treachery. They could still go either way. Some things still looked bad for Kier, and in spite of her saving Derry's life, Frederick was sure that he'd be able to draw up a picture that would convince them Kier and Misty had been working together. Explanations could be created for everything. No, the shadow of doubt over Kier was not yet lifted. Maybe there remained some way for him to ensure it never was. In the meantime, Frederick's other goal had not changed. It was vital that his service on this mission be remembered. Surely Lord Kean would recognize him for his renewed commitment in spite of his past indiscretions. And if he succeeded in regaining Lord Kean's faith and trust, he would be in an even better position. Destroying Kier Halliden would be much easier then. Valraker folded the letter and tucked it away in a drawer. He left the study, candle in hand, and made his way up the long, dark staircase. Very few people traveled this stairway, and even those used it infrequently. He had forgotten the utter stillness that billowed around him as he climbed. It was like climbing up into dense fog. The sounds of hustle and bustle of the castle remained below, insulated by the cloud. His candle flickered in a breath of air, indicating the pinnacle was near. He protected the flame with a hand. At the top of the castle spire, he knocked softly on the slightly open door. "'Come in,' a voice said. "'I heard you approaching, so I opened the door.' "'Hello, Piper.' Val stepped inside the tiny room where the wizard spent most hours of her week. The duke's gaze bypassed the massive crystals and talismans that Piper employed in her craft and went straight to the point. 
I need you to gate me to Barthelon Castle. My presence is requested. Piper nodded slowly. Fine. I need to meditate on it and prepare. Return in an hour. Valraker thanked her and made his way back downstairs to take his leave of Governor Linden. They put finishing touches on the governor's list of responsibilities during the Duke's absences, brief the new mayor about the improvements to the Airdrie trade route, hear the evidence against the livestock thieves who had been apprehended four days ago, settle the argument over property lines between the quarreling residents of Dock Street, head up the committee to choose a winner of the art show. Then Val found Acadia and bid her farewell. She passed on her best wishes for Alon's good health. Val gathered his belongings and returned at the appointed time to the spire room. "'Ah, just in time,' Piper whispered, waving the dark elf in. "'I'm ready to open it for you.' "'Thank you, Piper. I'll see you next time. "'My best wishes to my Lord Kean.' Piper placed her hands upon the jagged crystal on the blue velvet-covered table and breathed out. Moments later, an archway appeared, as tall and as wide as any doorway. It sparkled like iridescent air and was as tangible as a rainbow. Beyond it, Val saw his destination. He stepped through, and the gate vanished. He walked through the courtyard of Kean's largest castle and asked the steward where he could find his friend. "'Oh, he's been expecting you,' Moira said. "'He's in my lady's chamber.' Val nodded and made his way there. He knocked and entered. I'm here. Ah, poor Kian. I'm sure his lordship will really appreciate having Valraker there for moral support. So you may remember months ago I talked about how Matt and I spend our wedding anniversary. No, this is not our anniversary. It was months ago. I told you about how we show up at a multiplex movie theater at a random time and just see the next movie that's about to start. In this way, we have seen many romantic favorites like Inside Out, Signs, and Expendables 2. The very first time we ever spent our anniversary this way, we saw Jackie Chan and Chris Tucker in Rush Hour 2. I am thrilled to announce that the other night, after all these years, we finally saw the first movie, Rush Hour. I had never seen it before, so yay! Now I still need to see the full array of Expendables movies. Man, Expendables 2 was hilarious. So with that to look forward to, I say thank you to my family, Matt, David and Heather, and Maggie. Cheers to David and Sharon. Shout out to the original six. And thanks to you for listening. Now, go be fantastic.